Kalalau, a good friend of mine and a very renowned jazz musician um, in Chicago especially, but also internationally, just came out with an album last year with Jimmy Chamberlain, God Cut You Down. Been on the Billboard charts for how long now, Frank? Uh, it came out actually April of this year, and uh, pretty much um, even as of this week, it's just been doing really good. Oh, man. I gotta get my fact checker over here, do more research. No, we, we did one last year called uh, Love Supreme Collective, which was a tribute to John Coltrane's Love Supreme for its 50th anniversary. And that debuted at number one on iTunes and did really well for us, iTunes Jazz. Uh, and that has Jimmy Chandler from Smashing Pumpkins on drums, Percy Jones from Brand X on bass, Chris Pullen from Megadeth on guitar, and Benjamin from Kneebody on keyboards, and then, you know, me on the saxophone. So that one did really well. And that was our 2014 kind of uh, release and touring vehicle on uh, Ropadope Records. And uh, Tony Fitzpatrick did an awesome cover for us. And he did another awesome one for us this year, God's Gonna Cut You Down, which came out uh, in April and really has just uh, done better than I was expecting as far as actually, you know, I walk over to Club Lucky, it's in their jukebox. You know, every day someone's asking me, saying they saw it on Spotify. Physical copies have been selling good and, you know, still on the Billboard charts. The vinyls have sold awesome, of course, on the locale wall of fame there. So everyone has been really awesome with this one, and I'm very grateful. the same crew as the Love Supreme? Good question. Almost, because me and Jimmy Chamberlain are kind of the focal, so we are kind of leading the show there, but everyone else uh, is different. Uh, Demos Petropolis on Hammond B3 Oregon, and uh, we were listening to some Charles Erland earlier, so uh, as a teenager especially, I got to record and tour with, you know, Charles Erland, Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff, Dr. Lonnie Smith, uh, all these great organ players, so I had always been kind of gun-shy or scared of actually having organ on one of my records. So, in all the records that I've done, including getting assigned to Delmark Records in 1995, I've never had organ on one. So I decided for this one, uh, I'd like to have organ. So my buddy Demos played on that, and we've been playing together since high school, and he's a monster. We play together a lot at the Green Mill. And then we had uh, two great guitar players, Scott Hesse and Eddie Roberts. Eddie Roberts is uh, in a band called New Master Sounds from the UK, and uh, mm-hmm. we're good friends. I played with him at the House of Blues last year, so he guested on the album and did great. And then my buddy Mike Dillon played some vibes, and uh, I was on tour with him last week. Uh, we played together a while back uh, in Les Claypool's band, uh, I was for a little bit uh, ballpark <laughs> Frank in Les Claypool's Frog Brigade band, 
and uh, mm-hmm. and Mike just toured this whole year uh, with Primus uh, for their uh, Willy Wonka tour. So Mike's a really amazing vibe player, and I did this last week in his band. He had uh, George Coleman Jr. from Ween on drums. Just it was it was a really great week. So uh, nice. truly, some hippies. I, I just like throwing myself into different situations, and it's never boring. So uh, right. yeah, uh, it's good stuff. I mean, just uh, before we go on, Frank. I mean, you're a Chicago native, correct? Yep. Yep. We both live in the same neighborhood here in Wicker Park in Chicago. Yep. Um, so how 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 do you feel about playing? You know, outside of the city of Chicago, do you, do you feel like, I know you play at the Green Mill every Wednesday, right? Uh, including this morning. Uh, like, I, was, <laughs> I left at about 6 a.m. or so, and then went back to my buddy Jason, the, the manager of the Green Mill's house, uh, for a little bit. But yeah, we played uh, technically this morning from about 1.30 a.m. to 3 a.m. Uh, so we call it industry set. We started, you know, on the later side or early side, depending on who you're talking to. But so our friends can get done, you know, attending uh, bar, waitressing, whatever, and then head up to the Green Mill and, you know, we have a, a fun time. Uh, I, I was gone a lot this year touring and traveling, so I'm not there every Wednesday. Um, I try to maybe do kind of, it's been working out to be more like two Wednesdays a month, uh, depending. But I, I don't know if I really think playing somewhere outside Chicago is better or not, uh, because it usually depends you know on the people that are in the room and what the vibe of the room Chicago has you know the Green Mill which has a great vibe it has so many great clubs that have great vibes uh, so there's no no shortage of that in Chicago but uh, Detroit played this place called Cliff Bells last month awesome uh, Seattle place called Tula's Earshot Jazz Festival awesome like just as fun as playing in Chicago uh, the Sunset Club in Paris last month did three shows there um, I always love getting to go to Europe or Japan especially to play because the people are so appreciative and they're so knowledgeable plus the clubs are cool Japan, really? oh they're they're awesome uh, every time I played in Japan uh, they're more reserved meaning you might not hear them screaming and cheering and stuff and I go cut a rug on the dance floor uh, actually they will yeah they'll, they'll party for sure but what I, I would say for sure uh, I would say in Asia and Europe people are very respectful and they're very appreciative and they'll you know clap really loud when you're done playing and cheer afterwards but I'm kind of used to I, I guess being a Chicagoan you're playing a lot of places around here uh, middle of your soul if people like it they'll start cheering screaming your name you know whatever uh, kind of more like a rock concert situation even though I'm a, a jazz musician mostly or at least when I do my own band it's in a jazz context so I actually kind of uh, I'm not a stuffy person I like when people are cheering and having a good time I like if people feel like moving and dancing uh so that that would is, is to me what i would say the difference between playing in the u.s versus you know other countries it, and i would just say that uh the appreciation level is almost more in for sure you know france is a huge uh jazz loving country uh so i would say specifically there i have so much fun and i'm going back quite a bit in 2016 um, so looking forward to that but definitely while I'm actually playing you might not get the cheers and the other stuff but afterwards you know people all come up shake your hand congratulations it's kind of like a uh, 
like as where you're at the Green Mill, someone might come up to you and buy your CD and ask for an autograph or shake your hand or something. But so many people will be like, you know, half drunk and like, I can't wait to get out of here. And I hope I, you know, can follow this cute girl out quick enough so I can get her number as in, you know, one of those yeah. type of things. As so where in the US, you can like, you know, set shit on fire and take off your pants on stage. Probably good. Uh, I, oh, excuse I, the noise from North Africa. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, I'm sure that's coming in the mic right now. That, oh, yeah. that was definitely pretty loud. But we are in the, <laughs> we are in the heart of uh, Wicker Park Bucktown, and that's what goes on. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Cheers to that. Friend. Even in Jack and Joe's bed. Cheers. Especially gets noisy here. Yeah, it gets it's noisy good. here. I mean, we, Joe doesn't sleep here. He has his own home. But, you know, I mean, every once in a while. Or not at, yeah. Some nights. Some nights my cousin can crash, crash out. Yeah, that's a queen size bed. Are you comfortable by the way? Yeah, this is great. Right, I like ahead. the Avengers uh, pillowcase. person is there I mean I feel like in my experience of jazz that there are kind of there not there's necessarily two camps but there are people that kind of are a little bit more maybe cerebral or more sensitive to people you know like maybe the most extreme would be like a Keith Jarrett you know who will stop a show if he hears any if, noise, if he hears yeah. any noise yeah. and then but you you kind of are seem like you're on the flip side of that Especially with the style, it seems to look a little bit more of a looser feel, kind of yeah, uh, definitely. a little bit more of a soul, soulful playing. What, what's your experience with with in the current jazz world? Have you have you worked with both sides? You you have any stories about that, or do you have any like? Uh, impressions yeah. of that? I mean, I think it's di- it's up to everybody, but like even at the Green Mill earlier this year on a Wednesday, uh, before my late night Wednesday set, uh, uh, newer artist Leon Bridges played and over the last six, seven, eight months, he's gotten, you know, very popular and he's like a kind of, a, you know, a 60s soul type artist and Charles Renner, who we're listening to more today than yesterday and all his hit songs, uh, kind of 60s, early 70s um, soul. So I would say I've always tried to uh, incorporate a lot of that in my music because A, I love it and B, I kind of grew up playing with people that, you know, were the real deal uh, kind of originators, if you will. So to me, I always thought, why not embrace it? Someone like, you know, Keith Jarrett, like you mentioned, who I love and who's an amazing player, you could tell that is not where he's coming from. Uh, right. You know, and which I think is, is great because not everybody should be coming from the same place. And, you know, uh, I think that that is 
a great type of music and I love listening to it if I'm going to go to like Symphony Center uh, a, you know an orchestra hall type place Carnegie Hall and you want to listen to a concert concert where you can hear a pin drop and that's a great thing uh, more like you were saying cerebral um, I tend to like to have a good time when I'm playing I've had my finger cut off and put back on almost killed in a car accident by a drunk driver four years ago wrist kind of ruined uh, on my left hand I don't know how much time I'm even going to have as far as uh, you know till my body kind of gives out because I'm on borrowed time a little bit already I feel so my thinking is I want to have fun when I'm playing I also want to play music that I know uh, has a lot of uh, uh, weight to it meaning there's a lot of cere cerebral elements in it if you will um uh, you know, a lot of our stuff is kind of based in kind of a modal uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, John Coltrane, Miles Davis style. Mm -hmm. And we like to, you know, superimpose various harmonies in there. Uh, when Jimmy's playing, you know, one minute he'll be playing something that's kind of rocking. One day he, one minute he's swinging like crazy. And maybe for like five bars he'll throw in some like African rhythm thing uh, I mean like he really uh, incorporates a lot of different things into his playing it's not just a ching ting 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 like ride cymbal type jazz and he's too for people that don't know he's not only the drummer from the Smashing Pumpkins but I, I know being a drummer myself and knowing a lot of drummers he's kind of one of these guys who's he does like a lot of big clinics and he's oh, yeah. he's someone that's very well respected in the circuit of Drummers and yes, and that kind of thing. Especially in Chicago too, right? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, he was the original drummer for Smashing Pumpkins. We should know. And he, I mean, he toured with them this summer. Uh, you know, he it has rejoined them. I know he's sometimes been with them, gets <coughs> fired or quits. You know, depending on who you're talking to, rejoins them. But uh, more than anything, you know, yeah, he he throws in really interesting things. So I always give him, you know, a lot of props. And then you have, you know, the. Elvin Jones type drummers with John Coltrane that are awesome. Yesterday, uh, the drummer from my very first CD, Rusty Jones, passed away, and it was very sad because he was a great guy, really helped me out, and a monster jazz drummer, could play anything. Uh, he wasn't that old, he was around 70, so not that that was, not that 70 was real young, but I felt bad because it kind of came uh, suddenly because he was very youthful. I, I saw him this week, he sounds great. Uh, to, I mean, his playing was better than ever. So, uh, but just had, you know, a massive heart attack. Um, but that's, you know, one style of playing where it's more that Elvin Jones, uh, you know. Yeah, you're kind of almost like a s stream of consciousness kind of totally. spiritual yes, kind of totally. connection. And then um, another drummer that I play with a lot, uh, done quite a few albums with him, been friends with for a long time, who lives in Chicago here, is Paul Wertico. Uh, you know, playing Pat Metheny's band forever. He's kind of like, I would say, a mixture of all the people we're talking about. Uh, very fiery, you know, can play anything at any time, does not need a click track. And uh, I would put his time uh, against a click track any day. One, one time we were recording this series of duets, and he's just like, oh, I'll just put this down. It was a little shaker part. I mean, you play drums, I don't. But I mean, it was like 10 minutes of like, I mean, metronomic type stuff. Then he goes, I mean, so just, uh, at any rate, there's, you know, so many great drummers that all have their own styles. And it depends on, in my opinion, as a saxophone player, I don't think drummers give, get enough credit 
for shaping the sound of a band. Because a lot of times people say, oh, Frank, your sound is very distinctive. Maybe I'm writing the songs the way I write songs is distinctive. I have a degree in composition from DePaul. Uh, you know, I, I have certain things that I think you know, are gonna sound how they're gonna sound because uh, I I think I have a certain style. Uh, but you br- you put in Jimmy Chamberlain, it's gonna take on a different thing. Maybe you have someone like, uh, you know, Rusty Jones who just passed away, you know, him, it'll have a different sound. Paul Wertico, have a different sound. Uh, so just, uh, that to me is how people uh, can shape a song like a band can shape a song without changing the note, without changing the tempo, it's what the drummer is bringing to it. So when I say I like, I like to have fun, there's certain drummers that are more bebop jazz drummers that definitely won't like changing up stuff or having a, a solid back beat. You know, they, I actually had a jazz drummer, uh, you know, say that after hearing us play at the Green Mill, he thought that we weren't jazzy enough. And I'm just, and I'm just like, well, what does that mean? We have hundreds of cheering people. What would jazzy enough mean? Would that mean three people at a coffee house? You know, like playing quiet? So that's sure. where... He's looking for the Starbucks jazz. Well, that's, I mean, that's very possible. That's more what I meant, though, as stuffy. Not so, so much right, the, right. Um, you know, uh, Keith Jarrett, meaning I don't necessarily... I mean, he's cerebral, but I and he might be stuffy. I don't know him personally, but I'm not even getting that vibe. Uh, right, right. The vibe, uh, or at least the, the stuffiness. Like more innocuous kind of s- well, background jazz? No, it's kind of more like when somebody uh, is kind of trying to turn jazz into like a pseudo-intellectual uh, uh, talking point. Meaning, isn't music supposed to make you feel something? Mm-hmm. When I listen to music... There's some stuff where I go, I want to uh, analyze it. Then maybe the feeling is cerebral or mental. Like, you know, what is this guy doing? What note is he playing? Is he playing a flat nine, which sounds weird and dissonant and it's clashing? So there's sometimes where I'm into that from a, you know, I want to analyze this standpoint. But 99% of the time, we're talking now, I'm thinking, I'm having fun talking. You're asking cool questions. I like listening to music to unwind and chill out. Right. And the problem as a musician is a lot of times we listen to music uh, like and are always thinking about, you know, how can we make the song better? And we're analyzing it and we're not always just enjoying it. So right. I would say the last few years, especially after this last car accident, where I'm like, well, I might not even have been here to enjoy it. I'm not going to be as nerd intensive about it, mm-hmm. if you will. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, there's that old joke, and it's kind of like, you know, uh, a dude works forever to become a doctor, he becomes a gynecologist, been married to a beautiful wife that he loves very much for a few years, comes home, the wife's in like some like lingerie, and it's like, oh, I miss you, starts addressing, and he just goes, oh, not another one. So, <laughs> me, me, meaning like, um, it's a dangerous thing when yeah. you're always trying to analyze and think about, in this case, music. Uh, but it, for a gynecologist, it's a dangerous thing to be dealing with certain body parts all day and then go home to your wife or girlfriend. You know, it can take the romance out of it. Unless you're right, right. Well, <laughs> that could be a whole another uh, thing, I guess. Uh, they didn't put that into the joke. So, uh, but, uh, but well, there is that thing too, and it you know it exists. I, you could also see it existing in the art world, but I think it 
crosses over to a lot of things, you know, I know especially in Chicago because we have the SAIC, which is an aesthetic kind of school or a conceptual school that kind of has a, you know, but then there's all these, obviously, people who are talented artists who may go there aren't necessarily, their kind of skill or artisanship is not meant to be put on a white wall in a, you know, in, 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 in kind of chin scratching, you know, it's just like, no, it's, you know, this person is right. good at painting or they're good at drawing. It's not necessarily, you know, put in, you know, on a marble columned, you know, room with a, you know, it's like, it's, sometimes it can take the, the folkiness, the earthiness out of like the approach or the aesthetic. That's for sure. And I would say this in a day and time, when everything is on the computer and on the internet and or on Facebook, there's so much information. I used to have to transcribe Charlie Parker solos if I wanted them. Then they come out with the Omni book where it's, they're right there for you. You would still have to, you know, go to a store, buy the book, maybe transpose it to your key if it was in the key of C and altos in E flat, tenors in B flat. There was still some work about. Now, I'll bet you, you just type in anything you want, boom, it's right there on your computer. Um, it's 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 a it's amazing how much info is there all the time whenever you want it. And that, I think, has been a good thing for music and a bad thing. The reason why I think it's kind of a bad thing is because I noticed what I will call the quote-unquote hipster people, who I think are great for music and you know, the fact that they're out you know, going to concerts. And our neighborhood has become overrun with those, correct, it, Frank? It is, I would say about 80%. Well, it's almost You're past, it's al this neighborhood's almost past that point. Yeah. And now we're getting, <laughs> it's another whole echelon of... Well, in a way, though, I like that hipster mentality because they're, uh, that group of people, usually reasonably young, usually will go out to hear music, uh, usually pretty well informed. But the part that I don't like is they're sometimes over informed to the point where they're missing out on stuff. Right. Meaning right, right. instead of listening to a moment of music for what it is, maybe it's a gritty, passionate moment. Maybe it is a cerebral moment. Maybe it has nothing to do with either of those things. And it's like a color or textural moment. They will already have lined up a comparison. Right. And are already thinking along those lines. And that, I'll say, is kind of bothersome. Sometimes it's nice in and of the fact that it has actually helped uh, spread the word on my music. But, like, uh, sure. I notice a lot of them, for example, maybe they have an older album of mine. And, again, because you can just type me in and all this stuff comes up. Instead of, like, going to a record store and flipping through some CDs, which the jazz record mark still exists, but most of those have gone out of business. Um, they, they will listen to three seconds of something on YouTube and either decide that, wow, I like this. I'm going to now like this guy and check him out. And I'm going to make these comparisons on stuff that I've maybe not even heard. And that's another sure. thing that's weird. Uh, or it'll be like, I listened to three seconds. This didn't grab me. I don't like this guy. And then right. every time that guy's name comes up. It'll be like, oh, man, yeah, I listened to him and I didn't like it. It's like, well... Overly what, opinionated. Overly opinionated and usually... Pseudo-informed. Pseudo-informed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, okay, I, I have noticed that it's really easy to feel like you're an expert on something. Or someone will start... I've noticed this, too, before. I'm sure you have, too, where you're, you're, you're having a conversation with someone at a bar and then a particular artist comes up. And they're like, oh, yeah, and I love this artist. And then... 
you know, then you're like, oh, okay, well, do you, you know, do you you're like, well, know Frank this? Catalano, do you know, uh, he's just copying off of Charles Irwin and <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but then, yeah, then there's all this... Hey, there's, <laughs> there, there is that tendency to want to make things into... You know, there's a lot of things where people, the context gets taken out of a lot of music. I think needs to be, you need to not only understand the aesthetic and the structure and the, the, the genre and the style, but it's also the moment in time that was, it was made and why it was made and why it's important, why that hadn't been done before. It's not just something like you said, that's either uh, Oh, I like this or I don't, or I'll file this under this or under this. It's like there's a whole, you know, another way. And you, and, you know, that same song, like the same person that might have listened to two seconds of your song and said, no, I don't like it. But then, well, that might have been in the soundtrack of, a, you know, a film or something. And then they, you know, they're like, oh, this, I'm putting this is in this different context. Now I'm hearing this different. I'm experiencing this different or, or a historical context. Like, oh, I didn't know that. I you agree, know, and I, this was going on. I, I had a similar conversation about this, but but pretty in depth. Uh, I'm on the cover for this month of this Jazz Inside magazine, and you know they did like a you know 12 page you know feature on me. And what I kind of had said was that I did not want the Love Supreme album to be released track by track because John Coltrane's original one only four tracks, but you had to buy an LP, right? And it's a body of work, and those four songs were meant to go together. Nowadays, I would say starting about five years ago, it went from people coming out with albums to like, and singles that were always kind of around, but those are usually more for pop things. Uh, but you know, as far as, you know, serious music, singles weren't really around. Now on iTunes, you know, you can like buy one track or on Spotify, you don't even have to buy it. You just listen to one. And what I've noticed is uh, when I first got signed 20 years ago, uh, to Delmark Records, I remember Bob Kester, the owner, being very specific about sequencing the album, and uh, we spent a long time on it, making sure one track flew or you know flows uh, into the next, and it had an arc to the album. And nobody, in my opinion, at least none of my friends, just sits around and listens to a full album anymore. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people would go get their, you know, LP player, put on this side, flip it over, next one, then maybe go out to dinner. Sure. Or they would have some drinks and listen to an album. Now, maybe, like, your A track might come up, you know, on a Spotify mix, and then it'll go to the next one, then it'll go to the next guy, then the next artist. Uh, but uh, that's almost now if you're lucky. Because... Again, with the magic of YouTube or the 30-second, uh, you know, uh, sample uh, to know if you want to listen to the rest of the track or whatever it is, you're you're only getting a little, like, little micro taste of a song, which maybe for someone like me that likes to make actual albums is only like 10% of the album. So somebody is really basing whether they like an artist or not off of maybe 1% of one album and another thing that's to me shocking that doesn't happen anymore people used to have to go to a concert if they wanted to hear an artist for the most part Mm -hmm. so you hear a set you maybe hear two sets you're listening to some music you're getting to see and feel how that works now somebody will be you know sitting at home uh you know they pull up youtube for you know three seconds and like eh 
next. Meanwhile, it might have been that somebody half drunk had a crappy, you know, camera video, uh, like cell phone right, video. Right. It's not even a good basis for a comparison. So I sure. guess to me, it is what it is. And it's the way things are now. But it's so different than what it was a short time ago. It's kind of mind blowing. Like, I mean, I'm older than both of you guys, but it's not like, you know, I don't have an oxygen tank and a cane. And, you know, right. I'm not like 100 or something. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just amazing how much how much stuff changed in a small amount of time. Sure. Um, That's more of like a staff I, that you brought with you, right? That's not a king. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the father time. Thing. Oh, okay. stuff that they hadn't heard yet and everyone couldn't have been like more appreciative as an audience and just super cool and it was a really fun time what i've noticed is i i wish there was more of that type of open-mindedness i feel bad because i think especially when it comes to jazz a lot of people have already made a determination meaning there's some uh jazz that is uh, very kind of esoteric and kind of self-indulgent, uh, uh, kind of masturbatory, if you will. Mm. And some people assume that that's what jazz is. Like a few guys just kind of making a lot of notes and a lot of noise and not really caring about the audience and it is what it is. Then there's other types of jazz that are like old school, big band, Glenn Miller type stuff. Then there was the god-awful smooth jazz stuff uh, like Kenny G of the last X number of years. And I think I would like, call that masturbatory as well. <laughs> it, I, th- I actually think that it's pleasant to an extent, but it is background music. Like, to me, right. I don't think I've ever heard like any of music that. to masturbate to. <laughs> you still want to hear the porn at the same time. <laughs> if they kind of get the guitar and the two and four and the waka waka's going, maybe. But uh, <laughs> but I, I what I like in jazz is for people to be able to express themselves, to have fun, but so that there's also melody, pulse, stuff that, like... Rock bands usually have if they're good. Uh, R&B bands usually have if they're good. You know, uh, classical music has if it's good. So I just think um, I would just say if uh, I'd be real happy, I would be real happy if someone that listened to this podcast that didn't like jazz would then say, you know what? Maybe that was a couple years ago. I decided I didn't like it. I'm going to listen to it again because that to me, with my own music, because jazz is such a niche type of music. There's a lot of people 
that maybe they're not musicians because most musicians all either like or at least appreciate jazz even if they don't listen to it a lot but like the mainstream uh america uh i've noticed that when you say jazz they either think of elevator music or they think of something that's really you know over the top you know uh that they can't get into and there's a lot of other types of jazz. Uh, I, I almost don't even think they should call it jazz anymore. I think they should just call it improvised music or you know something like that, creative music, I don't know. Uh, but, but I do think, unfortunately, uh, at some point in time, jazz did get kind of a negative uh, uh, moniker put on it by kind of mainstream America. And well, that, but it, and the, well, a lot of people maybe don't realize, too, is that it's kind of faded into like you've worked with people that like like that are just huge names, even for someone that's pretty young, like you like uh, Jennifer Lopez and John Legend and, you know, some of the you know, obviously in addition, you, you've worked with these kind of pop people oh, yeah. who who you know, and when and you you've actually you know, penned some pop stuff. I mean, there there is. Plenty of when you actually get down to it, isn't there more? The people that are actually making these pop records have jazz backgrounds. They have almost all of them. You know. Yeah, and they're usually very talented musicians. A lot of them, uh, Maurice Joshua, who hired me for a lot of those pop things, uh, played trumpet. Quincy Jones played trumpet in Count Basie's band. Uh, just you know, so it's it's amazing that the people oftentimes with the Jazz Foundation end up producing all these you know pop things, uh, and I and I think it's because they're open-minded jazz people like myself. Right. You, you'll never hear me say, "Oh, I hate pop; it sucks." But ninety percent of jazz musicians would say that. Oh, right. I can't. I I got a lot of backlash. I did that um, Destiny's Child Girl remix. Uh, wrote the horn part, did a little solo. That was for Columbia Records, you know, a few years back, maybe like almost ten years ago now. But you know, that led to a couple of, uh, you know, playing on a couple of the Beyonce things and other nice things from that. Uh, if I would have just been like, oh, I'm too, you know, too cool for this, you know. But like the little horn riff was it was like beep, beep, and then. It's simple, but it's pretty, and it went well with the, uh, you know, with the rest of the music. I mean, how could somebody not like that if it's if it's done with substance and then having a solo? But I had a lot of jazz musicians, really, like <laughs> beat up sellouts and, and all this. And it, and they're waiting for you outside the coffee shop with soul patches and, 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 and turtlenecks. It, it wasn't real far <laughs> off from that. I hate to say it. Actually, it was at the map room. Somebody came up to me, um, uh, you know, let me know he's a professional jazz bassist. And I'm like, I didn't know there was such a thing. I was, I was, just, I was of course, goofing. But could you imagine, you know, if, if somebody comes up to you and says that, something like that, you don't just come up and say, oh, I'm a musician, or I play bass, right. or I'm a professional jazz bassist. And I'm like, okay. He's like, he's got yeah, a card. I've heard. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think he probably has a card, you know. But that would be one of those people. Uh, and I apologize if anyone listening is one of these people, because uh, I mean no harm. But you get a card from somebody, and I don't have a card because it's like Google Frank Catalano, take five seconds, and a contact for me either via Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, my actual email, my booking agency, like, it all, it's all right there. So 10, 20 years ago, people needed cards. Right. You know, for sure. Or if you're at the conv- the jazz convention and at then McCormick maybe, Place. Or maybe. <laughs> Even then, I don't think, you know, it's that. But the, the people that bug me, although sometimes they're nice, it'll be so-and-so. Jazz educator, jazz clinician, jazz trumpeter, jazz flautist, jazz ranger, jazz composer. And, and like, you know, this list of like, it's like, listen, maybe put your name on there, your email, your phone number. Just write, I like jazz. Some of them, I play you know, jazz. pick one. But like, I, I remember one person, I had to flip it over and it kept going on the back. Basically, he, he did everything. You know, I think, you know, uh, Roto Rooting was the last one from, from jazz flute to, no, but, but you know what I mean? It was just like, how much, you know. This guy doesn't need anybody. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. At all. <laughs> I just remember thinking like a philanthropist I, as well. I was trying to not laugh while I was reading this because it's, it it was just and he was forcing the card on me and it's like I don't really want it because uh, I can already tell uh, and his breath was real funky. If if I'm talking with somebody and they have like like that real like coffee breath, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like get a mint, you know, buy some mouthwash. You know, I think some people like that are just just born with that with whiskey, stinky breath. They're just born with that breath to alert the people around well, them. Because like, check this out. I was in the studio today, remixing the next me and Jimmy Chamberlain, which has my, like, kind of my, one of my idols, Dave Sanborn, guest artisting on saxophone on it, uh, Nerfelder on guitar, Demos again on organ. Me and my buddy Dan are mixing this stuff. You know, you're pretty close to people if you're at an SSL console, you know, mixing something. Right. If somebody has the kind of stinky, goofy, you know, like kind of like they put poop and coffee in their mouth combo. I don't know how to describe it, but it's it's a it's a prevalent thing. How do you know, how do you know it's coming from their mouth all the time? It's a good question. I'm hoping because I I don't know what else would be open for uh for that to be wafting directly at me. Also, every, every orifice is open at all the time. That's possible. I didn't think about it like that, but that's that's gonna be another uh uh, fact for the record book, I guess. I'm making a mental note right now. But, uh, yeah, it is just, uh, uh, also, I don't like close talkers, and I don't like people that spray, spit at you when they're talking. And those usually go hand in hand, like close talking and the spitty mouth. I don't like it. There's no need for it. So if you get the trifecta of bad breath, close talker, and spitty mouth, oh, man, it's oh, disgusting. Man. I am yet, uh, no matter how talented those people are, I just won't work with them. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, Frank, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, the fact checker over here, um, that's what we've been calling him lately, the fact checker. That's on my card. It, it is. It's number 177. <laughs> Interviewer. <laughs> Musician, journalist, fact checker, all these things. Actually, you know, I did find something really cool. Um, you, you you worked with the band Ministry, which is an, it like, for Very those who crazy. don't know, an industrial techno uh, death metal kind of combo. And you you invented some sort of new keyboard attachment or something? Yeah, um, basically... Is all I, this information on your card as well? Uh, it is not. 
uh, some of it some of it is on my website but um, a uh, one of the engineers uh, for ministry his name was Brian Kenny and uh, I had as a favor played on the album he was working on and he played it for them and Al Jorgensen was like man this guy sounds really good we should get him to do some playing with us so I got a call from them it ended up not being a good thing because their keyboard player had just overdosed and some weird stuff had happened. And died? And yes. Oh, this would have been like 1998 or so, 99. It was The tour was called Bad Blood, uh, Bad Blood Tour. But at any rate, um, it was interesting because uh, in listening to their music and trying to see how I could fit into their band, because it wasn't like you were going to be like playing Charlie Parker type lines in this band. Very heavy. You're going to play uh, some scrunky... Uh, I some, I got a bunch of like, kind of guitar like stomp boxes trying to like put some effects through it, but then I came up with this MIDI keyboard controller so that I could kind of harmonize stuff with myself. Uh, like you play like with the left hand, maybe play an acoustic saxophone note through like some of the effects, and then through the right you could like do all this type of stuff because they were doing a lot of keyboard like sam- like a Kai samplers were real popular back then, mm-hmm. so that's what they were more or less using. So I mean, it was a pretty fascinating little device it got patented um and then basically yamaha acquired it and that's how i became an endorser for yamaha and then the year after yamaha got it uh yamaha and myself uh got a uh uh, a tech grammy from the nearest foundation uh national camera recording arts sciences uh because they found like the, the things that came out with that year as being innovative and my little keyboard attachment thing for saxophone was one of them so uh pretty interesting how uh, you're not necessarily expecting something uh but some goofy uh idea will lead to another which will lead to another uh it has made me no money because nobody wants to use it and because unless you've had a finger cut off that you had to learn some keyboard to kind of compensate so you could be hired by other bands because your chops I gotta imagine that's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same doing like following a pattern on the key even though the keyboard is obviously really a prime you know it's uh, elementary kind of music I mean but going along with a Sax fingering has got to be a little bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, how did you pulling your brain in a couple different directions? That, I'm sure the fans are dying to know how you lost your finger in the first place. Um, I actually. <laughs> uh, Most of our fans, by the way, and this are are above seventy years old. Okay, very heavily senior fan base. Okay, mostly in nursing homes and things like that. Well. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I'm headed there soon, probably most likely. So. I was just trying to relate to yeah. our fan base here. <laughs> um, I had a Volkswagen Beetle, a 1972 Volkswagen Beetle. And I had to go to the airport. Uh, no one was home. I was in high school. Uh, I didn't want to shut off the car because I was fearful it wouldn't start. And I thought that I could add some oil without... Uh, Letting it cool down? No, no, the the engine was still going. And you put in the oil, this little cap, in the middle of this generator pulley. I did not know that this, like, belt thing that, you know, goes around the pulleys constantly flexes in and out. So imagine if you see something like this. You're thinking, like, okay, I can be careful and do this. I was obviously wrong, and it was very dumb, and I would definitely make sure any motor of any type 
is definitely not running anytime anyone wants to do something. But my right middle finger was the longest, so thank God it was just the one finger. Because if it had, if my hand had been further, it could have been all the fingers. It could have been really bad. And machinery doesn't care if it hurts you. Like, it just keeps going. And it's like, yeah, oh well. So it actually snagged off this much of my finger. And I had a leather glove on. It wrapped it around the pulley. The pulley chopped it. And it kept the glove okay. And it shot my hand back up at me. I knew something was really bad, but it hadn't hurt yet, and I was still kind of stunned because, like, I mean, you had a leather glove covering the actual site of the the finger. So I pull off the glove. Uh, glove blood is everywhere. I freak out and I drop the glove, but the finger was still in the glove. So I went inside. I called nine one one. I passed out because I lost so much blood. The paramedics came. They packaged up the finger. Uh, they cleaned it. Uh, Really great surgeon. His name was Damien Gress. I, I became friends with him, gave his son some saxophone lessons. Damn. Uh, he did an amazing job, put it back on. And uh, it didn't work for about a year. And it had a pin in it for a long time. I would say about a year, within a year. And I was going to like physical therapy all the time. I just remember being in school and it just kind of like started doing this. And I'm like, oh man. It was He's just switching his finger right It was just like fluttering, and I was not telling it to do so. And then uh, about a minute or two of that, it kind of calmed down, and I could start bending it again. Again, when, when you get It came nerves, back online. It really did. It came online. And I don't know how nerves work exactly. They're pretty fascinating. You, uh, If you get nerve damage, you can't necessarily tell your nerve or, you know, do this, do that, do the other. It has to kind of decide on its own when it wants to start listening to your brain again. And I know people have different theories about it, but I found it pretty amazing that after, you know, a certain period of time, it was like, okay, I'm ready to listen again. Because I was really nervous because the pin came out maybe like three months or so later when the, most of the bones and tendons were deemed to be healed. And then I was in physical therapy stuff for a long time with no, uh, no luck. And there's no guarantee that your finger is just going to start working again. Maybe it'll work from here because this didn't get messed up. But like if this stuff got all messed up and it's a different muscle that has some type of different nerve, nerve receptor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. So, it's so were you playing saxophone at all during that time? I was playing time? the whole time and I was using my right middle finger to do both keys, which is kind of unheard. The pointing finger, the long finger was inoperable. So to do this key, I curled this one up. So I was using like the tip of this finger. Your pointer finger. And, or yeah, index finger. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the knuckle to do them. So wow. I was kind of playing like this. And it, that is not a good thing because that could, you know, do other types of damage to your hand, I guess, like, you know, a bad hand positioning. But luckily it was only for a short amount of time while my other finger was healing up. Plus, because I didn't want to just like not play because I was still getting called to do a lot of gigs. And uh, not only that, but I don't think what people often realize if they don't play a wind instrument is your embouchure is actually like 90% of everything. And what is that? It's the way your lip and the air comes out of your body. So the kind of control, if you will. If you lose this, your sound quality is crap. High notes, low notes don't come out. Intonation doesn't come out. To, you know, sound will be wobbly. So... Um, 
if you just don't play for six or seven months, you'll probably lose most of that. Uh, I know if I play, I actually like not playing for a day or two here and there just to kind of let my lip kind of heal up. But if I was to go like, let's say more than, let's even say a week, I would definitely feel it. Uh, like stuff just wouldn't be real responsive. Kind of like imagine if you laid in bed for a week and didn't get out of bed. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean that your body's not going to work, but you might be achy or lethargic or um, everybody has been sick and laid up for a while. You don't feel the same as if you're kind of like regularly, I'm not even saying working out or jogging, but regularly doing enough stuff that, that your your body's moving. At least having sex. At least that. Right. Well, no, now too, don't they say like a lot of these certain injuries that they like in sports medicine that they said they used to be just you know lay down and rested elevated ice and now they want now it's like if you spring something moving. like yep. just keep moving because it's better to right. have it circulating and have it you know you know pushing the edge of not doing enough motion to re-injure it but also not keep it going keep it going yeah, yeah. you know yeah uh, at least from having these injuries and it seems like different doctors have different opinions but it seems like when it comes to ligaments and tendons, they don't really have veins. So they have to get blood from surrounding areas. So if you're kind of dormant or not moving, blood isn't flowing the same and it can't heal. So it does kind of have to be moving. But if it's too much, then you're re-injuring stuff and making it worse. So I think that you should just say rest because at least then you can't re-injure something that is trying to heal. But on the other hand, if it's not able to heal because there's not blood around it, that's, you know, obviously a huge problem. So, yeah, I, I just know for myself, uh, I try to take it easy because I do have all these injuries that are, you know, uh, healing, have more or less healed up pretty decently. But I can also tell when you do get an injury, you can way more easily re-injure it than if you never had an injury. Right. Uh, sure. I'm sure a lot of our elderly listeners know a thing or two about that and you know that kind of leads us into our next topic of conversation being that you know uh, nursing homes are just a hotbed for sexual activity oh yeah Frankly, it's a hot it's an issue we're all worried about it's an issue uh, I'm worried about um, Frank I'm sure you've been thinking about this as well but a lot I know um, you know Jet being that you're a saxophonist and um, you know Every actually every saxophonist I know and know of, you know they're they're just like a, a pussy magnet. So I was wondering, you know, how I mean, especially um, I know you're married now, so we won't get Sonia mad at me at all. But um, I know you were young once, and how how did your your early fame, you know, playing with Miles Davis, playing with a Tony Bennett, and all the other stars you got? privilege to play with as a young man I mean how did that influence your dating game I was like so nerdy and shy and then I remember the first time uh, you know I was like 17 18 got to play at the Grammy Awards and stuff uh, that really changed everything uh, girls that wouldn't give me the time of day because I was still in high school all wanted to go out with me uh, you, you know turned them all down right Actually, so this was in the in the nineties or in the. This would have been like nineteen ninety four. Ninety four, okay. One in particular that I had a crush on for a couple of years, uh, who had basically snubbed me, uh, like was like asking me to like turn about dance and stuff. Uh, but there was one girl who was always nice, 
and was cute and cool. And uh, we went out for, you know, like the next four years. But she had kind of snubbed me too, you know, before that. So it, I will say this. If you're out doing stuff that's deemed to be kind of cool, it does attract attention. Yeah, last night, even being old and fat at the Green Mill last night, you know, tons of hot chicks in their 20s are asking me out and hitting on me and stuff. But it's like, I just say, oh, I'm happily married. If they want to dance in front of me while I'm playing and do provocative things, which is what usually happens at these late <laughs> night, you know, things, they're trying to get sure. people's attention and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's fun because I'm not doing anything bad and nothing's happening. And that's just part of being a musician. And I'm pretty mild mannered, I think, uh, for a musician. Uh, you can always send them our way, Frank, too. <laughs> yeah, you don't know how many times I've gotten laid just saying that I know you. Well, sometimes... Like I, once. Once is the time. Oh, that's cool. That's once, once better than nothing. Well, <laughs> well you, say, you say it's like you're pretty mild-mannered, but so jazz, you know, especially in, in music just in general, but I think especially jazz has this pretty storied history of drug abuse oh, yeah. and... In, in sort of the, what would be deemed as, you know, licentious behavior or yeah. kind of like on the darker side of the thing. Have you seen any, have, is, uh, has that touched you at all? Like people, people pushing their limits too much for, you know, or you yourself? I, I don't feel I have done anything over the top. I definitely know, with the exception of my wife, you know, probably, you know, at least 20 or 30 of my past girlfriends or dating people uh, were because I was playing. And usually what would happen is they'd come up and talk to me and I'd just be like, uh, do you want to go out this week or what's your schedule like? And uh, almost always would say yes. Unfortunately, sometimes they'd say yes and then you find out like they have an angry ex-husband that wants to kill you now or you know, so then I got very guarded about stuff I would say 10 years ago and uh, uh, luckily you know I met my wife who's awesome and I met her in a non-musical situation oh, which means a lot to me because she's probably the only person uh, you know uh, that I've you know obviously now married to but that it dated that uh, we just really thought each other was awesome and uh the music thing was was what it was. You know, if you really have the passion and feel like you were put here to do a certain thing. For me, it was play the saxophone. I didn't know why at the time, I just knew I loved it. And I've made so many friends like you guys, but like also uh, I volunteer at the Auto Street Club. You know, I've been in front of thousands of kids there over the last 13 years or so that I've been volunteering there. And it's been so awesome. And that's just like one, you know, a couple of little examples. I've probably met hundreds of thousands of people over the last 20 years that I would have never met and probably have solid acquaintance type friendships with a couple thousand of those people. And if you have an office job, you're probably going to meet the people in the cubicle next to you and maybe a few other people, but you don't get right. to be in front of those types of uh, numbers of people. Unfortunately, sometimes you get in front of jerks. Um, unfortunately, sometimes you get in front of people that um, they're kind of hollow, empty people and they want to glom onto somebody that they think is doing something cool and that can be weird too so sure. so sometimes things can backfire uh i shouldn't say backfire but meaning like sometimes you meet people that you would rather you never met but uh i would say I a lot of those <laughs> I, I would say 90 some percent of the time 90 probably 99 percent of the time i'm so happy to have met a lot of cool people 
and uh, it makes it makes life exciting because you know you yeah, never get to cast cast a wide net and, and see how other people are. Yeah, yeah that, that is that is a really cool. Yeah, because you know you especially you walk around in a city like Chicago. You know, I, I experience this all the time where you're just walking down the street and you're like, oh, that person looks cool. Right. Like or that you know I, I but you you know you just never have a chance if to. If you actually went up to, to somebody and said you look cool, ninety percent of the time they're gonna be like get away you whack jack. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're gonna get a punch right. in the city. <laughs> like uh, I mean, why why do I look cool? You you're talking shit? It, if right. he, it, it would be very yeah. It would you just kind of can't do it. Although in theory. It shouldn't be you a know, bad thing, but people are on. on if we're cross free spirit hippies, we can. You could do it. Then. We can just. It's true. sitting down in my flush bed with us today. But Very comfy. We, thought, <laughs> we noticed, uh, I, I'm not going to name any names, it was um, the interviewer asked you, you know, I think your exact words were, uh, you know, uh, Frank Catalanos, Frank, uh, we understand you love the saxophone. You started playing at age 10. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember this. And I think it was like, like for a daytime. Uh, it was like a daytime yeah. talk show or something. Okay, like, but it wasn't really. Sex? <laughs> You're like, I don't know. I like how it sounded. <laughs> I'll tell you because I do remember. I liked how it looked because I didn't even know what it sounded like. Um, I do remember uh, the first time I saw a saxophone. Uh, there was a, a guy demonstrating different instruments, and I was maybe like seven or so. And he like played like a minute of the oboe, sounded nasty. Like for school, like yeah. in a like, like hey, you want to sign up for grade. a school? Yeah. yeah. And uh, then he played a few notes out of the trumpet. It's like okay. Then he went to the saxophone. He's like, yeah, I can't really play the saxophone. Uh, it's a difficult instrument. And then he went to like the tuba. And I'm just like, that looks cool. And I remember my mom was with me. And my mom's like, the saxophone's a pretty cool instrument. And my mom's like, I might like guitar more than the saxophone, but saxophone would be my second choice. And I'm just like, well, guitar wasn't an option because it was like band instruments or whatever. So I'm like, then let's go with the saxophone. So, uh, and as soon as I started playing it, um, even though I sucked and, you know, you're just starting, there was something about you had to have like coordination because it's not like a piano where you hit a key and a note's going to come out. And it's not like a piano where every finger is independent. On the saxophone, only one note is sounding at a time. But you might have to use every finger for some. You might use like a C sharp, middle C sharp on the saxophone is nothing. You don't do anything. And so D 
one, two, three, octave key, one, two, three, octave key, fingers wise. So you're essentially having to do this. And it doesn't sound like it'd be that big of a deal, but try it. You have to have a real precision and coordination. It's not like a guitar where here's, you know, uh, the, the pattern in your left hand and you strum and the notes come out. It's like, it has to be perfect. And that's not even including the embouchure, the way the reed's working, the tongue, which not trying to sound gross or whatever, but that affects the sound so much. Uh, so there's all these variables and I immediately found it fascinating. And the other part that really seemed fascinating is you're like breathing life into something. Flute, you have to have the certain embouchure, it's kind of uncomfortable. Trumpet, I tried. You're like sticking this metal thing into your lips, smashing your lips to an extent. You see a lot of trumpet players have all these rings, you know, around. that's where the mouthpiece forms a suction. They get scars, it look, they look weird. A lot of times, a uh, good trumpet player, Louis Armstrong had to start singing because his lip was so damaged from trying to play high notes and stuff. They made him special mouthpieces for a while that had these grooves in them, so they actually messed up his lip more, but he was at least able to get some seal going. Because if you're, uh, whether it's saxophone or trumpet, if there's air leaking out on the sides, you're not gonna get any notes out or they're gonna sound bad, even if they're squeaking out a little bit. Um, so like now all those variables that I find fascinating because they all have to come together uh, pretty much perfectly, uh, you know, if, if someone's gonna be a high end player. But uh, the saxophone, the bore of the saxophone, it starts here, it ends up here. Uh, it's called a conical bore. Trumpet is, you know, same way. Trumpet the same way. But flute, it's a cylinder, cylindrical bore, clarinet, cylinder, and you don't, at least for me, I don't have fun playing those because there's all this like back pressure. You're constantly having to keep everything under control. Saxophone, you can just be like, you know, if you want. Uh, and I more go that route. So that's why I've noticed a few snooty stuffy people used to like me because I used to be a little bit more um, in the academia mindset. I used to be a college professor. Uh, I was a college student getting, you know, like I said, my degree in composition. So I was analyzing all this Weber and Schoenberg, uh, tone poems, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, box inventions and symphonias. So I was in more of an academia mindset and I noticed other stuffy people like people that are in the academia mindset nothing wrong with that but it's also like I'm like well I don't want to like keep pleasing the same like eight people like I want to have fun playing so unfortunately I did in the need I think accidentally a few people but the fun factor of being able to just unleash some powerful notes on the saxophone, but also with the precision of the fingers and harmonic movements and, you know, little nuancey things, trying to see if you can get the notes to break away, you know, like that I have fun with for myself. I've had some people bash me for doing it, saying like, oh, well, everyone knows it should be like this. It's like, well, they have well, business cards too? They probably, they probably <laughs> did and they didn't even need to use them because I guarantee you they are not working very much. But. Uh, but it's like, sure. who's who's to say what's the right way or wrong way? No, no one can. If you prefer somebody else, that's fine. I had one guy send an email, and he's like, he's like, oh, you need to play like so so and so. I don't even remember who the saxophone player was, and uh, and he's like, your playing is just too flamboyant. And I'm just like, okay, that I've never been told I was flamboyant 
Uh, but maybe your music made him feel flamboyant. Uh, I think that <laughs> I just I said to him that this was my response. I I just remember at the time I'm like that guy plays like a pussy. I don't want to be a pussy, and I'm like I'm on the Billboard charts and he's not. I don't get why you wrote this uh, email. Please don't waste your time or my time ever again. It, it like meaning I wasn't trying to be a complete jerk, but it's like somebody took the time and energy to look me up. To waste my time and try to be negative. Another thing is I can't stand negative people. I think people should be positive and try to spread good vibes. Sure. Once in a while, not everyone has to be. Which I broke. think is a hallmark of a lot of. It seems to me like a lot of <clears throat> the people that I've known in music who are who do become successful, they're not necessarily the the most raw talent people because I, I I've just I've seen so many. Folks with extreme raw talent just fade away because they just can't talk to people and people don't want to work with them. And they're very, very talented, though. They're very... um, You have to have talent in what you're doing to become successful unless your uncle owns, you know, Columbia Records or something. Then maybe, because we've all seen, like, people that are horrible, but then out of nowhere, you know, are on every TV show and this and that. It does happen once in a while, but most of the time... If right. someone's going to have a career uh, and a long, a long term, like longevity, they have to have talent. Unfortunately, because I've seen this myself with various people, sometimes the people that have the most talent are not always well balanced. Sure, sure, and that makes sense because if it's that, that to me is too is is, is this my other argument for you know that musicians and artists should have representation or not necessarily but like they need people to help them artists real artists need people to help them because they don't what are the chances that you're going to be at the highest level of of an expression of a certain type and then also be uh, really good at social media marketing and also really good at glad handing after your show I mean the chances of all those Factors balancing into one persona are, are to me, they can be, you know. I, I agree. I, it was funny because the other day I was talking, me and Jimmy Chamberlain had this nice PBS special on us that just aired. You know, at least a, a couple million people have seen it. Uh, a lot of people have chimed in to me about it, but like, yeah, 85 PBS stations, very happy about it. I think it should be posted on YouTube, but I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I had somebody tell me that I was a really good self-promoter. And I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or to be pissed. Because in a way... <laughs> sort of a backhand. You know, because in a way, like you use the term glad-handing, uh, I'm not like a, oh, please listen to me, please listen to me. Because, right. uh, you know, because that seems weird. But I'm genuinely proud of these things that I'm working on. And if I wasn't proud of them, I wouldn't do them. And sure. so I feel I'm pretty cut and dry. As where a lot of people I know, they do stuff they're not proud of because A, they need to pay the bills, or B, they feel like I should do it because it could lead to something. I just don't do stuff anymore if I don't feel I will be specifically like excited and proud about it. Like yeah. a salesperson, don't, you wouldn't sell anything that you wouldn't you want to buy. Yourself. But, but we all know tons of salesmen. You walk over to, you know, uh, whatever Whirlpool, you know, appliances. Nobody selling that stuff is excited about it, but sure. it's a paycheck. And I respect right. that you have a family to uh, support. Uh, but, like, if maybe you're a car salesman at a Lamborghini dealership, that's pretty cool. 
I would I think that'd be a fun job. But you go to you know Joe Blow's used car lot is the guy that comes out in the Dockers in the tie with the stain on it and all that stuff. Is he really excited no. to be selling somebody a 1987 Nissan he for $1,200? I'm guessing. And his wife. So that's and probably his own car. So that's where my thinking would be the difference. Uh, sure. If you're working at a Lamborghini, like if someone bashes a, a, a car salesman, what I would say is you shouldn't bash anybody unless you know them and you've had a bad experience with them, regardless. Because it's uncool to just jump to that conclusion. Second of all, a Actually, person, my dad's a car salesman. There you go. It's a huge asshole. <laughs> But, well, he, but he can put me in this car today. <laughs> but he's sold me about 10 cars. I keep buying them for him. I, I can't stop. I hope there's a family discount. Anyway. <laughs> just trying to mention, though, that there's there's different levels of everything. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. And being, uh, being that this is a, you know, Pink Hippo Productions is actually... Paying Joe and I exorbitant amounts of money to yeah. produce this podcast. Speaking of money. Speaking of money. Speaking um, of I mean, the great <laughs> levels of success. Right. I mean, we're pretty much right. I'm a producer for Pink Hippo, you know, I do other things as well. Pink Hippo is a very cool company. Pink Hippo is a film production company, as our listeners know, but um, being that this is, we have an overarching theme of film and music, and we want to be educational mm-hmm. for all of our. Um, all of our listeners and we really appreciate you being here but um could you could you tell us a little bit about i mean just so we can touch on film for a second um kind of like your experience with creating scores or your aspiration for doing scores with film and how that's different from say making an album everyone has their own take on their process for making music uh, i went to school for composition and specifically film scoring because I really think if you took music out of most films kind of like I mentioned the drummer in my band even if I'm playing the exact same notes same melody everything the, the song will take on a different shape for better or worse I really think music in a film uh, can make or break a scene it can make or break the mood uh, so it's super important and it's exciting I'm wacky I don't have any specific process. I try, I'm not formulaic. Uh, a lot of my friends, uh, they kind of have things that sound similar because they have like a formula to what they do. A lot of people uh, have some stuff that sounds kind of similar because that's how they're hearing it. If anything, that's more how I uh, would fit in. Like, you know, I have a certain kind of idea in my head and it may be, you know, it's not gonna be yin and yang all the time. It might have a certain, uh, uh, kind of congruentness or however you want to say it uh, but I know when it comes to film stuff I definitely like to see the scenes and know what I'm dealing with and in my hope because I still feel like a very creative person and I have not burnt myself out uh, like so many of my friends uh, that I get inspired and music starts in my head coming about then I have to get it out on either the piano or the saxophone. Sometimes if I get like a really uh, important idea, I used to just have this little uh, recording cassette tape thing that I used to carry around with me like in the 90s especially. Uh, then I had a mini disc player in the like late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. Now with the magic of the phone, 
Right. You hit your voice memo or whatever, and you're all good. But even if I don't have anything, if I'm driving or something, I can sing all the melodies that I come up with, and I can usually hear the other stuff around it. Like, in orchestra, let's say there's 110 people in the orchestra, but there's usually a melody so maybe sure. you put it in the violins and you spread it to throughout the strings and then you pick it up on the first trumpet and then it goes to the french horn section whatever but that's up to you to orchestrate it and arrange it later but at least for me the nucleus or the important part starts with the melody and you can put almost any type of set of chord changes to that melody you want. Something simple. Very simple little melody. You could put, you know, each beat could be a different chord behind it, or you could just have it say, okay, G, D, C, B, I'm more or less within a G. You could just maybe have like a, a G7 or something as a chord. Uh, for So you could keep it simple, or you could really make it involved. But you have to have, in my opinion, first some type of melody. And I've had, you know, people try to argue the point where, oh, no, the chords are more important. It's like, this isn't an argument, and it's not right or wrong. Everyone has their own thing. But for me, I like to start with some type of melody that sticks with me. And then my thing in the sky is the limit after that. What you yeah, you can hang a lot. You can, it, it is, it's a, I, to me, like a good, a good melody. And I think just to your everyday listener someone who's not a musician that's what they're going to you know when they when someone goes and sees a band they're like oh it's the vocalist that's the one that they're going to hear because that's the one who's delivering the melody or maybe the drums because that's the it's the most basic form of you know for sure because you can hang you know like you were saying you can hang any number of ornamentation around a really solid melody I mean, or something. I mean, I think most of the songs I write, whether it's intentional or not, people always email me and say, like, man, I've just been singing your song Shaken all day. I can't get it out of my head. You know, I really love it. Thanks. I just listened to it on Spotify for my fourth time. I usually respond back and say, great. I really would like that you purchase it so that maybe I can pay my mortgage this month. But I'm glad that you're still listening to it, even if it's on a thing like Spotify where no musician actually gets any money from. Do you get Uh, any money from Spotify? uh, Basically, right now, nobody gets hardly anything. So when when I say hardly anything, like, you know, you might get, like, small amounts of money. Five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks. We're talking about, like, nothing. But they are trying to monetize it in a way that will be more fair. I don't know how they're going to do it or or how that's going to work when, you know, people... It's $12 a month. You can't, like, raise it now. They're making tons of dough as a company. So I don't know... I I, I just don't know how things are going to go. Uh, but, like, Taylor Swift started talking about how, you know, she had, like... 12 million streams or whatever it is in a month and she got checked for like 135 bucks or something uh, I'm not saying that those numbers are exact but but I'm, <laughs> but I'm not exaggerating by much I don't think she's a big mathematician either <laughs> yeah. uh, but but it was like I mean it was it was it was it was very low amounts of money for somebody who who was arguably the most at the time the most exactly. famous person at right now Joe the most famous person in everyone's minds yeah. Including my own. But when you think about it, We're, yeah. 12 million or so, uh, not downloads, but streams or whatever you call it. I mean, 
Uh, on YouTube, you'd make a ton of money for that. If, if you were on YouTube and you did some type of uh, advertising partnership thing with them and whatnot, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing you could probably get a few cents each. Your check, instead of being for like $135, would probably be for, you know, three or $400,000 with $12 million. Right. I, that would be my guess. Right. And if it was 12 million people that just bought your album, you would be really rolling. So I would guess at two bucks an album, let's even say, that's 24 million. So when I first started in the record business, quote unquote, and uh, even though Delmark was a smaller label, they were still fair. I've had Warner Brothers and Columbia Records have had two major label record deals. Uh, not only did they used to give pretty decent advances when you would sign on, but like basically you would probably get about a dollar for your songwriters portion if you write a lot of the songs like I did. And then you get ballpark a dollar or so uh, for your actual performance royalty. Now they could try to finagle with some of it, but they couldn't really ink with the songwriter stuff that much. So in theory, 12 million copies, even if they really tried to uh, say no money was made because they spent on advertising, you were gonna still get about $12 million, a dollar, you know, per album. So, like, a lot of my albums did really well, like, 10, 15 years ago, we're on the Billboard charts and stuff. You know, uh, back then, it was not unheard of to, to sell 50 to 100,000 albums as even a not super famous jazz musician. Uh, you know, now, pfft, you know, if you, I think uh, Love Spring Collective sold about 12,000 or so, uh, which the fact that there was four uh, songs on there, I think I was told like somewhere in the 45-ish, because not everybody bought the whole album, but around 45,000 like downloads. I was like, okay, but that's still not bad. I'm like, but it's so much less than it was years ago mm. and I've built up my fan base and that's also including you know Jimmy Chamberlain and all these other people being a part of it so it is interesting people just don't buy music as much in iTunes now that there's Apple Music me and Jimmy got the number one pick from the downbeat Apple Music kind of uh, promotion thing that they did a couple months ago which was nice you know tons of people download and listen to it uh but it's like kind of like a spotify where it's like a free thing so it wasn't like someone says here's five bucks i'm downloading your album on itunes now it's kind of like i'm paying 10 bucks a month to listen to as much stuff as i want yeah. so here's your penny you know so it's just uh that's another, right. another thing as far as uh being a you know musician now I don't know because I squeaked in under the wire where you could actually still get paid well to do it. Sure, I don't, sure. I don't know. Like, where's the carrot? Where's the carrot for the artist this to the young, nowadays? Young guys yeah. like yourself, unless they figure out how to monetize these streams and these other things, there's going to be very. It's going to be very difficult for new bands to make any money. Older bands maybe won't make as much, but if they still have the diehard fan base and you know you're you know like. I like to make the vinyl and, you know, other things like that. We're not talking about big dough, but it's like, it's enough to pay for recording the album and going, doing a tour and hopefully people come out to hear you while you're on tour and some dough comes in from that. But as far as like new people, um, and not only that, but because of like what I call the American Idol syndrome, uh, like so many people are like, yeah, I'm here. I want to be a star now. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, I know, you know, shows like American Idol 
almost make it seem like if you have a small little bit of talent, you can go sing and, you know, be famous. I mean, most of those people that were on the American Idol show aren't even good enough to be like a horrible wedding band singer in no, Chicago. No, it's marketing. It's it totally is. I mean, luckily for you, Frank, we have at least the amount of viewership as American Idol. There you go. <laughs> so this podcast is going to get out there, and people are going to understand. Hopefully I get voted on for the next the next yeah. episode. Joe actually was on, um, he was competing in the last couple of American Idols, but I think they told him. I've known guys that have done that American Idol thing. I've known a guy that I worked with. He's a pianist from Michigan. And it is. It was kind of, you know... Even that, even as huge of an exposure as that was, it really just ended up not really doing much for him. I really, think you it's, start crying when you lose, you actually make more money. They give you an extra... Because it's one of those things. It's that catch-22. Like, people that... You know, it depends on where you lie, but, you know... Right. It's it, yeah. It's it's a tough it's a tough game. I think nowadays for I it's really tough so. motivation. Um, I think for people to stick with it. Kind of like I was mentioning earlier, people have to feel passionate and like really into the stuff they're making. Most people like to go back up people on American Idol. Probably not going to be real passionate about it. And right. and uh, except for Clay Aiken, though, right? <laughs> Clay Aiken. God, I wish we could get him in here. <laughs> we will. Okay. He's, he's got nothing. I think if you have about 250 bucks burning a hole in your pocket, I think <laughs> I think we could we could talk to his agent sister and have him come out. No, joking. I'm sure he's doing quite well right now. Sure, yeah. Yeah, great guy. He's a fantastic individual. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know we're probably about out of time, but uh, what I guess, what I would just like to end uh, the little conversation right. with is is that um, the amount I'll at least say this for music but I know it's the same for film the amount of money that it used to take to make a record like the time I got my first record deal and I'm like a broke you know 17 18 year old kid getting ready to start college um, uh, you figured studio time back then was a couple hundred bucks an hour all day long meaning like you know if it, it was expensive uh, you could maybe get like a, a block for a week at a studio for maybe they would cut it down to a grand a day, like seven grand. Or if you did like the off hours, you like if you knew the engineer better. at a studio. But So those, all those studios have gone out of business because now everyone has recording equipment and they can do it at their home, uh, at a buddy's house, or it's brought down the cost of the actual studio, like what they can charge. Then I could even do a shitty podcast like <laughs> you could, or in your bed, or in your bed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the cost of making a record now is almost nothing. As for when I started, it was probably about fifty grand. Plus, then you had to have the CDs pressed, you had to have a proper distributor, you had to send them to Tower Records or whatever. All these things are gone. So it is interesting that you can actually make films for a reasonable budget now. You can make albums for a reasonable budget. So that's the stuff that in a way is kind of interesting if you want to be prolific and make a lot of stuff. But it is also weird because almost everybody, at least music-wise, you know, I look and it's like, you know, the the album reviews in like, you know, magazines and blogs. I like, there's like a thousand albums in the jazz realm that come out. It's like, I didn't even know that there was a thousand jazz musicians in Chicago, but yet, so like, how is this happening? So that's one thing that I noticed has changed. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, it's just different. 
Right on, dude. Yeah. But no, thanks, guys. But yeah. I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for coming. And, uh, Super let's, fun. Let's probably walk down to the bar now. Yep. A little sauce. I have to move my car so I don't get a ticket because it's oh, six. Shit. And then yeah. let's, let's walk over to the local count. All right, man. All right. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, in bed with Jack. In bed with Jack and Joe. Yeah. And there will be a new episode coming soon. I'll probably re-record this closing. Yeah.